0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Chris Chope's attitude was not that he was in favour of upskirting. I'm not seeking to defend him. I think he was wrong, but I'm simply seeking to explain. His argument was if this measure is so important, the government should introduce the bill as a government bill.
2: But that's the system. That's the system. Who was is, who is Christopher Chope? to say there should be no such thing as a private members bill and he and one person can object and stop it yes explain that to me
1: the answer is that bills become law as private members bills on the basis that they are widely popular and that there is consent if at an early stage that consent does not exist frankly it stops the bill in its track.
2: Oh, so Chope understands consent in this fashion. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, he I was mean, just... I
2: how ironic.
1: Absolutely inveterately opposed to the bill being introduced as a private member's bill. Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years, I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power.
2: Hello to all of you out there on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John.
1: Good morning to you, Deborah.
2: Uh, It's a delight to be here. And this is your new podcast, Absolute Power, in which you, John Burko, are going to be my, Deborah Francis White, guide through the corridors of power, which you know far better than I do because you've you've stalked those halls for many years.
1: Stalked is one way of putting it, a somewhat disobliging means of expressing the point, but uh, nevertheless, I won't take it personally.
2: I don't want to imply there's something of the night about you. Just I'm very glad to, be clear, to hear it. Just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinarily
1: um, generous and accommodating, of uh, you. Um, so I'm, I may have all sorts of other disagreeable qualities, but devilishness is apparently is not, not amongst them.
2: I'm, I'm an unqualified delight, John, and you'll you'll <laughs> learn this as we get to know each other better. Indeed. Each week we take a different part of the parliamentary system and we look at it in detail. Now on this episode, John, we're going to be talking about private members' bills. But firstly, what is a bill?
1: A bill is a draft law. When it becomes a law, it is an act of Parliament.
2: Okay. So it's not what they give me at the end of the night when I have gone to my show business private members club. That's that's the kind of private members bill I'm used to paying.
1: Yes, or what the Americans call a cheque.
2: Exactly. No, it's it is that. not.
1: It is a so, draft law. And although I understand the connotation that you attach to the notion of private members, that is to say, a club mm-hmm. of which... One is a member by Mm -hmm. virtue of paying a subscription, there being an element of exclusivity about it. The connotation here is very different. Private member is used to denote a member of parliament operating not as a party representative, but as an individual backbencher introducing a piece of legislation. There is usually a considerable appetite amongst members to introduce a draft law, that is to say a bill, a private member's bill, as a consequence of which there is at the start of each parliamentary session typically a ballot and people enter their names in the ballot and if they are drawn in the top, let's say 10 or so, they have a chance to introduce a bill Very often, members who put in the private members' ballot haven't decided at that point what bill they would introduce if they were successful, but when they become so, they are usually on the receiving end of a very large flurry of letters and emails. Requests.
2: What you've just said to me, I think, John, is it's a raffle. It's run like a raffle. All of the backbenchers put their number in and the the Super Bowl and all of that, and then somebody spins around a cage full of numbers and then out pops number 15 and then whoever the backbencher is who's number 15 goes, ah, I'm I'm now allowed to
1: put forward. I think these days it is actually, Deborah, an electronic ballot, but nevertheless, for purposes of graphical illustration, you have done it exceptionally well. And that concept of the raffle or of drawing lots is useful in terms of trying to explain to people how a member gets the chance to introduce such a bill. And why is there an effective rationing system answer because of shortage of parliamentary time? So everyone could put their bill forward,
2: except they don't have time, so we'll just pull some numbers out of a hat. Yes, because there
1: are 13, one, three, Fridays in each session. 13 Fridays on which private members' bills are taken. And there can be a long queue of such bills. Most of them fail because they don't have enough support. The government doesn't want them. They run out of time. They are, if you will, talked out, which is itself a matter of some controversy. And from time to time, it's been suggested that bills introduced by private members should be handled differently and there shouldn't be the opportunity to talk them out they should okay, be sorry, voted sorry, sorry, sorry. through or talked
2: not. out what does talked out mean
1: talking out a bill means talking on it until the deadline for that day's <gasps> private members business has been reached
2: so it's like filibustering and the in matter america has
1: not been decisively determined and that is talking out and the concept of filibustering is applicable in this case now strictly speaking if you're taking a very technical view of it filibustering is impermissible so the occupant of the chair the speaker or deputy speaker would prevent filibustering in practice the chair tends to take a very lenient view and if the member on his or her feet appears to be making remarks that broadly appertain to the bill he or she is probably going to be given fairly free rein, And so under our existing system, if the member piloting a bill doesn't have sufficient support present that day to force what we call a closure motion, that is to say, a motion that brings the debate to a close and proceeds to a vote on the substantive motion, if a member doesn't have that, and very often on a Friday they don't because most MPs are in their constituencies, the scope for talking out of a bill is very great.
2: Okay, so in America, there's a thing called filibustering, and if anyone here, any of our listeners haven't heard of it, they literally stand there and read a Dr Seuss book to try... And they're allowed to. They're allowed to read the back of a cornflakes packet. And they do this to waste the time so that people never get to vote, which should be illegal surely it should be it should be that's something for well it
1: is a very controversial feature of the existing system my own personal view for what it's worth is that the procedure committee was right when it looked at these matters a little while ago and produced a report suggesting that there should be guaranteed slots for private members bills which by the way needn't be on a Friday. And that after a designated period for the debate on a bill, it should be the subject of a vote. And if it's voted through, it should be able to go into committee and to proceed and to make progress. And if it's voted down, then it ceases to be. The government has been resistant to that. The government's been in favour of keeping the situation exactly as it is. And what that means in practice is that the debates are always on a Friday. And unless the government particularly wants MPs to be there, or unless there is a huge personal and political appetite across the House for a given measure, it will be very difficult to garner enough people to attend to force a bill through. So even if it is generally regarded by a lot of people as a vaguely desirable bill, unless MPs feel sufficiently strongly to turn up, the person or group of people opposed to it can be in an, a very strong position to prevent its passage.
2: Okay, so, so there what,
1: used to be a member called Eric Forth, who's no longer with us, who specialised in talking out private members. Should girls.
2: we change the name of this podcast to No Longer With Us? No Longer With Us. But I can't really be John Burko's No Longer With Us. Now there that is would... a
1: man called Chris Chope, who's a very experienced Conservative MP, and another Conservative MP called Philip Davis, who are expert in Our derailing bills.
2: So my friend, Gina Martin, uh, she went to a music festival and a man put his mobile phone camera up her skirt and took a picture without her consent or permission. He was a stranger. She didn't know him. The police were there at the music festival they said, "Look, there's really nothing we can do about this because it isn't illegal." Um, now, Gina Martin was a citizen, just you know, doing her thing. She was a young woman. She wasn't in any way uh, had she had not previously been politically active. But she said, "This isn't right," and the reason there isn't a law against this is because it's a new phenomenon. Yes, Gina then decided. I'm going to do something about this because I've been a victim of this and I don't want this to happen to anyone else. So Gina found an MP who had won the Great Tombola at the village rate that is our parliamentary system, so was able to bring a bill to the House of Commons and say, hey, we'd like this to be a law. Um, do you know happened to know the MP that brought this bill?
1: Vera Hobhouse, the Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament for Bath. OK, so... She introduced the bill.
2: So Vera who's a liberal democrat said yes i absolutely think that men should not be able to take pictures up skirts now an interesting thing about this john is it was already illegal in scotland and what do we know about scotland why might it have already been illegal in scotland kilts uh-huh so when it affects men, men, there's already laws. They're active on the matter. There's there, there's already laws. That's my theory about why it was already. Yes. Yeah, uh, so in mean, other
1: words, you are disputing and rubbishing the notion that it was the intrinsic progressivism of Scotland.
2: Well, I, I, than I love with the
1: regard to male interests.
2: I love the progressiveness of Scotland, but also, I do think where there are kilts, there are laws. Now, John, uh, my friend Gina then had to campaign in order to get enough people to go yeah this is really awful let's create this law um there's a new technology here it's being abused uh it's it's very distressing for women these pictures are often put on the internet and distributed it's a horrible thing and so I think most people hopefully every single MP anybody who would be voted no matter the party would go yeah we don't we don't want this abuse and this harassment and invasion of women we want this to be a sexual assault. And so there was an MP that voted against it. Who was that?
1: Chris Chope objected to the bill and therefore it didn't progress any further. It was in a list and at the relevant point, he, if memory serves me correctly, shouted object and it wasn't able to proceed further. Why? there was annoyance on both sides of the house. Chris Chope's attitude was not that he was in favour of upskirting. I'm not seeking to defend him. I think he was wrong, but I'm simply seeking to explain. His argument was, as it tended to be with almost all private members' bills and continues to be, that if this measure is so important, if it is to the public good that it should be introduced, the government should introduce the bill As a government bill, we should not be legislating on a Friday with relatively small numbers of MPs present for changes in public policy through the law.
2: But that's the system. That's the system. Who is is Christopher Chope to say there should be no such thing as a private member's bill? And he and one person can object and stop it? Yes. Explain that to me. And I don't mean, I'm sort of basically saying, John, explain yourself in as much as you presided over a house where one person can object and everyone has to just go, yeah, fair enough.
1: The answer is that bills become law as private members bills on the basis that they are widely popular and that there is consent. If, at an early stage, that consent does not exist, frankly, it stops the bill in its tracks.
2: Oh, so Chope understands consent in this fashion. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, he I was mean, just
2: how ironic.
1: absolutely inveterately opposed to the bill being introduced as a private member's bill. He took the view that if this is important, if the public policy purpose is going to be served, if it's going to be of benefit, well the government should introduce But he must the bill know itself. that the
2: government doesn't always do these things and they think they've got other priorities, other priorities around and this
1: doesn't rank as education as and
2: housing sure. and in Pretty Patel's case, keeping everyone out. Uh, if uh, you are
1: suggesting to me, Deborah, that there was an element of the cussed, the bloody minded, the unreasonable about the stance that Chris took, that I'm perfectly open to that proposition. But it isn't for me, if I can put it this way, to be in the dock answering questions as to how Chris Chope can possibly justify himself. I mean, you would have to ask him. But the system is as it is. Fundamentally, if at an early stage there is a determined individual or a coterie of people who want to stop a private member's bill progressing, they can. And the way to avoid that is for the sponsor of the bill. I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying it is as things stand the situation. The way to avoid that is for the sponsor of the bill or one of his or her fellow sponsors of the private member's bill to have persuaded sufficient MPs, 100 MPs, to be present on that Friday.
2: What's so that the quorum? What's the quorum? How How many does there need to be?
1: If memory serves me correctly, unless there are 40 members present, precious little progress is going to be made at all. But if you want to bring the debate to a close and have a vote... I do. ...on a particular part of the bill or on the merit of the bill at the first stage, which is called second reading, you have to have 100. And if you've got a 100... Sorry, can we can... just
2: stop there? The, the first stage is called the second reading? Yes. Why the... is the first stage called the second reading? Because
1: when the bill is published, it is presented to the House in a purely formal process, which is called the first reading. But the second reading has long been the principal opening debate on the general principles of the bill. If the general principles of the bill commend themselves to the House and the House votes for that bill, it then proceeds into committee where there is a clause by clause, line by line consideration of its merits with scope for amendment and so on. And then there is a report stage of a bill when the work of the committee is reported to the House, there is a report stage and then finally a third reading and then the bill goes to what we call the other place, namely the House of Lords.
2: Is that if, called the other place is that what they call it
1: It's known in the House of Commons as the as other, the other place. place sometimes members do refer to the House of Lords but it is common and old fashioned but still common for it to be referred to as the other place
2: you can see why so many of our leaders went to went to Oxford and Cambridge because there's you know there's the, all of that uh, you know, all the first, the second the, reading is actually the I know, the, first the whole and,
1: lexicon is quite internalised. Yeah. And a Labour MP called Laura Pidcock, who lost her seat at the last election, who was a very, very, very strong and fervent left-wing Labour MP, a very principled person, not very popular with the Conservatives. And the Conservatives weren't very popular with her, but she held very strong socialist values. And I remember Laura on one occasion saying that she thought that the, the lexicon, the practices, the terminology, the customs of the house were deliberately designed to intimidate mm. ordinary working people. And she was determined not to be intimidated, but she didn't think there was anything accidental about it. It was something of a conspiracy theory, and I don't say that I subscribe to it, but I could see what made her think that. She felt that she was an outsider coming in, and some of these rather elaborate and fusty customs mm-hmm. seem to be designed to put you in your place. Anyway, I think we they're, digress. They're, they're
2: shibboleths, really, aren't they? They're, they're things where if you don't know them, you're not really one of us.
1: Yes. As far oh. as the upskirting bill is concerned, you know, it's not for me to defend Chris Chape, and I'm not here to defend Chris Chape, and I'm not defending Chris Chape. I'm simply explaining his position. His How argument do you feel about Chris say, Chape? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't agree with him about this at all, but Chris's argument was, if this bill is so important, why isn't the government introducing it? And you may well say, of course, there are very good reasons for that shortage of time, prioritisation of other issues, Tory government, etc. He would then say, yes, but if this member is introducing this bill and telling the House how important it is and how well supported it is, why is this member not able to produce 100 colleagues on the day to seek from the Speaker permission to put a closure motion? Would the Speaker grant a closure motion if there were 100 members seeking it uh, the answer is yes after a given period of debate that given period isn't precisely prescribed it's up to the discretion of the speaker but in general terms what i would say is that either in relation to a vote on second reading or a vote on a clause in the bill The Speaker, the Chair, would want to satisfy him or herself that a reasonable period had been allowed for debate on that matter. What might that mean? It might mean a couple of hours, but would it mean six hours? Almost certainly not. On a number of occasions, when I felt that, to coin a phrase, everything had been said, but not yet by everybody,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and there was a clamour for a division for a vote and a 100 people wanting it... I would tend to take the attitude: let there now be a vote. Let there be a vote. So or you the would decide as the speaker. You'd the speaker say, has the authority to decide whether guys, there should be a closure motion. We or not. we get
2: the idea. We get the picture. We're ready to vote. Vote now. Yes. And then uh,
1: now the the most effective of the parliamentary vandals were quite skilled at appearing to focus on a bill. And so they didn't completely divert from it.
2: Because in this country, you can't read Dr Seuss.
1: You can't read Dr Seuss. You do have to be developing an argument that relates to the bill. You can't just read Dr Seuss and a say, list of names from a telephone directory. No. But
2: Chope could stand up and say, I do not like it, Sam, I am. I do not like this bill.
1: Yes, Chris Chope is experienced at it and relatively dexterous, as is Philip Davis, and they will tend to talk about the bill and they will take almost any number of interventions from colleagues. And there was always an awkward situation for people who opposed them and wanted a bill to progress. On the one hand, they were sometimes quite infuriated, other members, by what Chris or Philip was saying and wanting to pop up and say, Will the Honourable Gentleman give way? Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman that what he's just said about the bill is completely unfair, disobliging, and inaccurate? Mm-hmm. And they'd want to get that on the record. The trouble was that the member concerned, let's say Mr. Chope or Mr. Davis or in days yeah, one by, Eric Forth, <laughs> would love to give a very full reply Ugh. because that would take up further time. And I remember we used to call it in-flight refueling. When <laughs> I was first a member of parliament, I was part of that awkward squad, i um, revealing my guilty secret here. So
2: you've done this?
1: I don't think I personally caused a private member's bill to fail, but I would sometimes assist Eric Forth in the early years that I was in the House. I would say, would my right honourable friend give way? And Eric would say, well, Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm actually trying to bring my remarks to a close, but yes, I'll give way to my honourable friend. And I would interrupt with a question, and Eric Forth would tend to say, well... Mr Deputy Speaker, my honourable friend, makes a very powerful point. And in fact, his inquiry is so discerning that I think it warrants quite a comprehensive treatment in response. And oh, I hope God. the House will forgive me uh, if I attend to my honourable friend's point in some detail. This is your version and of Dr Seuss. Eric Forth was fond of engaging in some preliminaries and he was very skilled at it and he would speak for quarter of an hour or so and then he would say now Mr Deputy Speaker turning to the bill itself comma
2: and you knew that he was
1: about to launch into a further fairly detailed and comprehensive treatment. of. But
2: do people give up and go I'm so bored now I'm going to leave?
1: Well people often did leave but then that just left him free to occupy the field and you know from time to time he would Tease and rile members opposite by saying, "Mr. Deputy Speaker, the House will be pleased to know that I am approaching the conclusion." Labour members would look absolutely relieved and delighted. Pause of my preliminary remarks.
2: Oh my God, this isn't right! Like I don't think this, I don't think the House of Commons should be held uh, hostage. So like Eric this. was
1: very skilled at it, but it was a form of parliamentary destructiveness and as I say he was an expert at it, he did it with considerable guile and parliamentary awareness but it raises the question, is it right that the consideration of legislation should be done in that way? My own personal view is that it should not be. I think that there ought to be allocated slots, there should be a debate on the principles of a bill the House should then be able to vote on whether it thinks that bill should go through to committee or whether it wants to dispose of it.
0: And three hundred and sixty-five day returns.
2: So, John, um, the stat that I read was ninety-five percent of government bills pass. Yep. So, if the government say we want this, this is the bill; it's going to pass into law. It probably is.
3: Yeah,
1: overwhelmingly likely.
2: Overwhelmingly likely, but because a lot of people have to rebel, otherwise. But only eleven percent of private members' bills pass.
1: I should say though that in the sixties. Private members' bills were quite a useful alternative for a government that was not ill-disposed to a measure but didn't want its fingerprints all over it, enabling that measure to become a fact. So, for example, in the 1960s, the Labour government was not altogether illiberal on the matter of homosexuality. But it used to be said that Harold Wilson was nervous of decriminalising homosexuality because he represented Hayton in the northwest of England, with a very strong religious community amongst his constituents, who on the whole were not keen on the legalization of homosexuality. What happened was that a Labour MP, a backbencher called Leo Absey, introduced the Sexual Offences Bill 1967. And that became law with the support, not altogether tacit, reasonably explicit, but not official, of Roy Jenkins, the then Labour Home Secretary. Or to give another example on a very controversial issue on which there are very strongly divergent opinions now, and there certainly were then, David Steele, the Liberal MP at the time who became a Liberal Democrat, introduced the Abortion Bill 1967 and 1967 you know, was a great
2: year for private members bills. So that bills. was quite
1: a significant year for private members bills.
2: So this is really interesting because most private members bills don't pass. Most most government bill is it do, do I say government bill?
1: Most bills Go, are government bills. So, government, so and just, most of the time if the government doesn't want and I think I started by saying if the government doesn't want a private members bill to become law you can almost certainly bet your bottom dollar that it won't become law. There is one exception. There are exceptions to everything in politics. And the one exception, Deborah, I suppose, is if the government hasn't got an overall majority and if there's a strong will Mm -hmm. elsewhere in the House for a particular course of action, that particular course of action can transpire.
2: But what you're saying to me is if it were not for private members' bills, we would not have legalised homosexuality in this country certainly not as soon as we did it like it probably
1: would have happened but yeah, it would but, have been delayed
2: but i mean hopefully by now so it's a sort of sneaky way of having large quantities of delicious cake and then going oh more cake I mildly that too.
1: circumlocutory way of achieving the objective yes that is to say not spoken out for directly
2: mm-hmm.
1: and trumpeted from the dispatch box. So are th- facilitated behind the scenes.
2: So are those the ones that get through? By parliamentary the ones,
1: acquiescence. This
2: is a very... It's Because 11%, is so a very low hit rate. Yeah. Are those the ones that get through? The ones where really there's a sort of unspoken whip
1: for yes. it? Yes, I think that's true to say. Where there is very strong support across the House and an inclination to make it happen, it can get there. And it can sometimes be convenient for the government simply to say, well, we have heard and will heed the wishes of the House. They might not have wanted to do it directly themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, Gina Martin's upskirting bill did not get through on a private member's bill. So did she then have to say to the government that... Yes, and the government
1: then committed to its introduction. The government made clear its strong disapproval of the action that Chris Chope took and indicated beyond doubt that it would legislate on the matter. And that, of course, so, Chris Chuck just
2: wasted the time of Parliament, really, because it went through anyway, but now it has to go through on a Wednesday rather than a Friday.
1: Yes, I don't think he would look at it like that. He would say that he was using the existing system to register his point, but very large numbers of people would say that he had wasted time and that he had delayed a necessary and overdue measure which had overwhelming support in the House of Commons.
2: So was there still a value in Gina Martin going for the private members bill first because it put it on the agenda? Yes. And because also people were so pissed off with Chris Chope. Yes and Gina Martin couldn't
1: be expected to have perfect information. She couldn't be expected as a citizen to know in advance quite how bizarre the behaviour would be towards the perfectly sensible measure which her campaigning had brought about. So I don't think there was anything to be criticised about that. Would it have been desirable in retrospect is always easy to look with hindsight if the government had simply legislated on the matter. Yes, but I think the government would say, well, we weren't to know Mm -hmm. that this very sensible measure, which we knew had widespread support, would be objected to in this rather destructive way.
2: How do I get Chris Chope out of the room so that he doesn't just object out of bloody mindedness?
1: You can't get Chris Chope out of the room, as you put it, so that he can't object out of bloody-mindedness. The issue is the strength of forces. If you've managed to get more than 100 people, then that person wanting to object isn't going to be able to do so because the 100 or more will have forced a vote on the bill. And if the bill is more popular rather than less popular, then it will make progress, whatever the dissident voice might wish. The difficulty comes if... You think you've got passive support, but it isn't explicit, it isn't manifest, it isn't articulated. It's no good a member promoting such a bill having people saying oh I agree with you but Mm -hmm. I've got to be in my constituency that day I'm visiting a school I'm going to see the local health service so we come back back to
2: we need electronic voting because if I agree with it but I don't think it's as important as being in in my constituency that day because I'm I'm my first obligation is to my constituents I can't vote for it because I wasn't there I mean, we need electronic voting. We just do. Um, that's maybe what also a private member's bill could do. Could a private member's bill bring in electronic voting? private
1: member's bill could bring in electronic voting, but electronic voting, though in my view an extremely desirable and long overdue reform, has not yet found favour with the House. And if you're asking me, do I think this Conservative government, of which the leader of the House, a key figure in Parliament, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is a distinguished ornament, is likely to want to move to electronic voting. Ugh. I have in all candor to say no. Jacob is not
2: he, he knowingly
1: would... an enthusiast for anything that could be characterised as
2: modern. I'm surprised Jacob Rees-Mogg would allow anybody to vote with a quill, because that would seem to him to be a piece of modernity too far.
3: Well, indeed.
2: He went to... I think it
1: is a matter of record that when Jacob's been accused of being the member for the 18th century, he has tended to... Object, saying that is
2: altogether too too modern. modern. I mean... We've got a question from a listener. EB on Facebook says, is there a problem with the press overreacting to news of private members' bills being introduced, which have almost no prospect of becoming law?
1: Yes, I wouldn't say that it's a huge problem, but the questioner does identify a relevant point. Sometimes it's just as true in other respects. For example, a lot of members are encouraged to sign early day motions in Parliament, which is a means by which to express a point of view. The difficulty is that quite a lot of constituents wrongly imagine that early day motions are voted upon or even can become law, and that's simply not true. In fact, One critic of early-day motions once described them to me as the equivalent of parliamentary loo paper.
2: Wow. Finally, John, where would you put private members' bills in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power?
1: Nearer to basic irrelevance than to absolute power.
2: And yet a no death penalty have made a LGBTQ, difference. LGBTQ. Well
1: that's why, you know, it isn't susceptible of an absolutely straightforward answer. There have been some worthwhile and progressive reforms brought about by private members' legislation. But if you ask me in the average year, is a major difference made? to the British polity by private members' bills, the answer is no. The answer is so, 11%. <laughs> the answer is 11%. And so it's a small minority. It's a small minority of overall legislation. And of those private members' bills introduced, as you say, they're almost nine times out of ten going to fail. So there's no way that they could be said to constitute absolute power or anything near to it. They can make a difference at the margins and have done so, but are they the most reliable or predictable source of meaningful change? No. The government's legislative programme will tend to be that of itself is not only inoffensive, but probably right, because for the most part, in most situations on most issues, if the government feels strongly enough that a bill is desirable and will command widespread support, they should be expected to find the time for its introduction and passage, and often do so. However, because time isn't infinite, because there isn't an unlimited supply of parliamentary days, some measures get put on the back burner. But if a willing backbencher comes along and wishes to pioneer change, the government will go along with it.
2: I am happy that this may have inspired people to do as Gina Martin did and say, hey, this has affected me. I want this to become a law. My first port of call will be a private member's bill. But when... Chris Chope, for reasons known only to him, and by the way, the word Chope did become an insult in feminist circles for a long time. Um, when, If he's going to be such a Chope about it, at least we have brought it to the attention of the government and we may be able to pass it into law another way. And in fact, Gina was successful. So please don't listen to this and think, oh, there's no point because there is a point. Firstly, some of the most progressive things that have ever happened in this country have been brought about through private members' bills. But secondly, this is a big billboard for you. Even if you don't get it through, it does bring it to the government's attention. So please, if you're listening to this and you want to affect a change, ask your MP who has won the great Tombola. <laughs> Who's won the raffle? I'm sorry this is our system, but it just is. There's nothing I can do about it. Who's won the raffle? And go and speak to them and see if you can get your cause away.
1: You have summarised the position extremely pithily. That is what a constituent should do.
2: You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White.
1: And me, John Burko.
2: Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinsky. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com.